point to Koliakovo for St. Louis. Watched by Halpern. Boys moves in with a rocket of a shot. He scored. Brad Boy Snipes in that clip we just played. Brad Boy is the newest member of the Buffalo Sabres. Welcome to the Sportscasters. It is March 1st, 2011, one day after the NHL trade deadline where the Buffalo Sabres acquired Brad Boys. Everyone around town is pretty excited as he will make his Sabres debut tonight against the New York Rangers. But welcome to the Sportscasters, of course, a podcast about sports, sports media, and the way that sports and pop culture intertwine in the world around us. Donnie, welcome uh, to the show tonight. Thank you. How are you doing? I'm doing pretty good. I'm excited about everything. we got a great show lined up. We have Sean Leahy from PuckDaddy.com. He is our Puck Daddy blog on Yahoo.com, and he's going to talk to us about the NHL trade deadline, a bunch of different topics around the NHL. And then listen to this, Donnie. Yeah. You've heard of the, you've heard of the 1927 Yankees, and they call it Murderer's Row. Yes. Right? I think it was Gehrig, Ruth, and uh, someone else who's probably really good at baseball. <laughs> well, we've kind of had murder, the Murderer's Row in sports writers the last few weeks. We have had, going back to three weeks, Joe Poznanski. And then last week we had Lee Jenkins, and this week we have John Wertheim, uh, about three of the best writers in the history of American sports journalism, and we're going to be really excited to bring John Wertheim on to talk about his book, Scorecasting, which has been uh, part of a little book club that we started uh, here. And of course, later in the show, we're going to make a book club announcement about what the book of the month is going to be next week. It's a little bit different uh, this month, and uh, I think people will enjoy it. Um, it's kind of a different different way about it, but uh, the way we start every show is three things, so let's get going. Let's play a game. All right. Count of three. One. All righty. I'll take it off. Two. The oil patterns on a PBA lane are very, very difficult. Three. I might be able to beat Jamarcus Russell at quarterback. <laughs> <laughs> this is the funnest night ever. <laughs> Did we just become best friends? Yep. All right, I'll kick it off. My first thing, we do talk uh, some basketball on the program. Absolutely. With with, uh, some of our guests especially know a lot about hoops. I, however, do not. And uh, I'm not the biggest basketball fan, if you can't tell. And I think I realized why. Uh, a, there's way too many timeouts at the end of games. Timeout, yeah, yeah, yeah. Timeout. The last minute of the game, I don't know how many timeouts there actually are, but it's. I think they get six and a half. Seemingly, they save them all for the last. Oh yeah. Thirty seconds of the game. Mm-hmm. And in addition to those timeouts, uh, cheerleaders can cost you a basketball game, apparently, which isn't a great rule. But <laughs> in the Louisville Pitt game, Louisville about this. was up five points. Uh, the guy. I can't remember if he dunked or laid it up, but he basically sealed the game, put him up five with less than a second left. I think they had like 0.5 seconds on the clock. Game over, right? Well, one of the uh, male cheerleaders for Louisville came onto the court, grabbed the ball, and threw it up in the air thinking the game was over. Well, Uh, that's an automatic technical, apparently. (laughs) So the guy proceeds to make both his shots, and then they get the inbound. So, I mean, they got off a of prayer. They ended up missing it. But, I mean, it hit the backboard. It was, it was close. There's a foot from tying, tying the game and sending it to overtime because the cheerleader got a little overexcited. And I just don't think uh, 
it's not a great rule. <laughs> I, don't, I don't know how you can penalize. A f- I mean, I know you don't want fans or cheerleaders coming onto the court, but man, it's rough that they almost lost that game because that guy came on the court. It's so funny. It sounds exactly like something Will Ferrell would have done in a Saturday Night Live skit. <laughs> right. <laughs> but uh, my first thing, there are about 12 or 13 defensive linemen with a first round grade this year, and I was watching them at the scouting combine. And I'll tell you what, as a Saints fan, I want one of these 12 guys really bad. Uh, Daquan Bowers is kind of the general number one uh, defensive lineman on the board, and I know that that would be a dream. But a guy that might be around when we pick is Cameron Hayward, and he's actually the son of a former Saint, Ironhead Hayward. Okay. And uh, he went to Ohio, Ohio State, as did our offensive lineman or defensive lineman, Will Smith. I think Cameron Hayward would be an awesome, awesome fit in New Orleans if he does last. But all the way to the 10th rated, I'm looking at uh, MockingTheDraft.com, which is a website I've been talking about on Twitter, and I really enjoy. They have Jeremy Beal, who uh, played at Oklahoma as their 10th-ranked uh, defensive end. And uh, it's just really, really deep this year. So I would really hope that the Saints will be able to get a defensive lineman. But in a draft where there isn't a real huge superstar name at the top, um, I think defensive uh defensive line is going to rule the day and then i hope the saints can get in on that party my second my number two uh the clippers who have been a long joke yeah two basketball ones in a row for me the clippers have been a joke forever absolutely uh they got griffin now to try to change it around a little bit but they uh, still can't keep from making mistakes apparently the clippers are going to play a game tomorrow march 2nd against houston at home they have chosen that game to celebrate black history month Oh, they missed it. <laughs> <laughs> Which uh, was in February. Yeah. F- uh, to be fair to them, they played 14 games in February, and only two of them were home. So uh. I mean, that's a kind of brutal schedule to begin with, but come on. You can't make it one of those two games. And also, I, some people are kind of taking offense to the fact that they're talking about how in celebration of Black History Month, they are uh, allowing 1,000 underprivileged kids to come into the game for free, which kind of makes it imply that like black history has to do with underprivileged kids. So some people are taking a little bit of offense to it. So well, the Clippers have dropped the ball a little bit. Are they only allowing black underprivileged, underprivileged kids? kids? I, have no, I, I have no idea. I just, I just saw the poster. I not. Yeah. Cause I mean, there's no really right way to do that. If you only allow black underprivileged kids, then it's, I don't know. I guess it fits the theme, but you're still a couple of days off. And That's disappointing. The Clippers, I mean, come <laughs> on, get your act together. All right, Don, I got a list of names for you. This is my number two thing. Okay. Ready? Yep. All right, Mark, Mark Andre Fleury. Yes. Eric Stahl. Yes. Nathan Horton. Nikolai Zherdev. Thomas, Thomas Vanek. Dion Phaneuf. Ryan Sutter. Brandon Coburn. Jeff Carter. Andre Kostitsin. Dustin Brown. Brent Seabrook. Zach Parisi. Ryan Getzlaff. Ryan Kessler. Mike Richards. Corey Perry. All from the same first round. Yep. 2003. Three. Okay. All, I didn't name all of the 31st round picks, but going into this week, 29 of them, including Sean Bell, the 30th pick who played one game for the St. Louis Blues, all 30 of, 29 of the 30 had played in the NHL. Correct. This week, finally, the 12th pick, Hugh Jessman, made his NHL debut for the Florida Panthers. <laughs> yeah. So I just want to congratulate Hugh Jessman, who went to Dartmouth College, big kid, 
for whatever reason, just could not get out of his own way, couldn't make it to the NHL. Uh, he played four years at Dartmouth. Uh, then he went to the Hartford Wolfpack. Um, didn't get called up by the Rangers who drafted him. Ended up in the East Coast Hockey League for the Charlotte Checkers. Back and forth between the Wolfpack and the Checkers. In 08-09, he played for the Milwaukee Admirals. And he played for the, them as well the following season. And this year, he had been playing for the Rockford Ice Dogs. 25 games, three goals, two assists. Wow. So I don't know what the need was to call him up now other than <laughs> Florida is an A absolute uh, yeah. AHL team as it is. But trivia no more. Yeah. Hugh Jessman is no longer the only player to not play. So is, congratulations, Hugh. Is he the Ryan Leaf of the NHL? Well, he was the 12th right? pick, yeah, so probably not. But That'd be like Alexander Digg probably or someone along those lines? Yeah, Alexander Digg, yeah, that would be a great name. But imagine, Pat Falloon maybe, yeah, yeah. imagine just, I mean, in that draft, you could have closed your eyes and thrown a dart at the board and gotten a top 35, 45 player in the league. And Who actually drafted him again? I'm sorry. The Rangers did. The Rangers did. Okay, yeah. so it wasn't Florida that missed on him. They just get to uh, enjoy and him now. I heard that the Rangers were between him and Parise. And yeah. took Justin because he had more size. size. Good choice. My last thing uh, is a little bit unrelated to sports, but it, there's a tie-in to it. Did you watch the Oscars? I did. A yeah, uh, little bit boring, a little bit slow. Brutal. Uh, Kirk Douglas was, <laughs> <laughs> to be nice, he was, uh, he was all over the place. He was, kinda, yeah. he was a little bit of like a funny old man, and me and uh, my wife, Michelle, are watching it, and I go, Man, he's acting crazy. Yeah. You got to check Twitter. See what people are saying about him on Twitter. So I ask her to check Twitter, and I go, what do you see? Do you see anything on there? And she says, I don't know. Is that Cam Newton? (laughs) (laughs) In response to, I guess, Damashek tweeted something. Damashek all day was tweeting, like, questions to ask Cam Newton. Right, yeah, yeah. So, like, right around the same time, Damashek said, uh, what did Cam Newton say? And that's the one tweet that Michelle saw. And thought he was talking about Kirk Douglas, apparently. And she asked, she says, I don't know, is that Cam Newton? So I was on the floor laughing. Apparently she's not a big college football fan. <laughs> oh, boy. All right, my number three is kind of similar. What is going on with Wild Thing Rick Vaughn? He, is, <laughs> he has lost his mind. <laughs> he sure is. What is going on? I mean. He's addicted to Charlie Sheen. What? <laughs> I watched Piers Morgan last night. Uh, Rick Vaughn was on there for a whole hour. And <laughs> he is just unbelievably batty. He's, he's in a show, Two and a Half Men. It's the number one comedy in the United States. Highest makes, paid actor. He or makes a yeah. million dollars an episode or more. And because he can't keep his shit together, 311 other people <laughs> have lost jobs. jobs. And, and he says on Piers Morgan that... He's going to make sure that the studios pay him, and then they're going to pay the cast, and then they're going to pay him, and he's going to be the winner. Yeah, he demands a raise, too. <sighs> Rick Vaughn, wild thing. <laughs> he is out of his mind. He needs mind. to get his act together. Yeah, I, I stopped watching Piers Morgan, and I realized too late uh, via Twitter, I think, that he was on last night, and I was pissed I stopped DVRing it. Yeah, one, uh, I guess, a pro tip on uh, Piers Morgan. There's a podcast. It's just the regular show. So you can subscribe to the podcast. Oh, really? Yeah, this way, if someone was on and you miss it, you can listen to it later Yeah, I watched on. it because his guests the first week were really good, and then it was all about right, Egypt, a, and it was yeah, it's, kind of boring. Who cares? And it's tailed off. All right, so that's it for three things. Solid edition. Uh, let's all say a prayer for the wild thing. Hope, <laughs> hope he can get his act together. And uh, we're going to take a break, and when we come back, 
This is the rest of the show. Oh, business. Yeah. You don't can't let me forget the business. Sportscasters, where can you find us? And the list is growing. The list of places we've we got find a blog that growing. we've been active in now. Yeah, we're st- we started blogging and we've been pretty active. Donnie did a really good job of kind of log- live blogging the NHL trade deadline yesterday. But you can find our blog at http colon slash slash the sportscasters dot blogspot dot com. But there's also a link from our website, sports casters.com. Right. And you can also find us on Facebook, www.facebook.com slash the sportscasters. You can always email us, the sportscasters at gmail.com. And you can follow us at Twitter, which is at sports underscore casters. Both of those are plural. Or you can follow Donnie at Garbage Radio Don. Or you can follow myself at Diversity23. So we're going to take a break. We're going to come back with the great John Wertheim. And then we're going to talk to him about the book. After that, we're going to make an announcement about the book club coming up. Then we're going to have Sean Leahy on to talk pucks. And then we're going to finish off pick four. Sound good? Sounds good. All right, let's do it. Our next guest was born in Bloomington, Indiana, and he later went on to graduate from Yale University and went on to earn a law degree at the University of Pennsylvania. He is one of the most accomplished sports journalists of all time. His work has been cited in the Best American Sports Writing Anthology four times and one other time in the Best American Crime Writing. He joined Sports Illustrated in 1996 and is one of the magazine's most authoritative voices on tennis, the NBA, sports, business, and law, and social issues. He is the author of seven highly praised books, ranging in topics from tennis to UFC, baseball, and even pool. His latest book is one that he co-wrote with his good friend and finance professor from the University of Chicago, Toby, Tobias Moskowitz. The book, Scorecasting, The Hidden Influences Behind How Sports Are Played and Games Are Won, will be the focus of his time with us today. Thank you very much for joining us tonight. Oh, pleasure. Thanks for, uh, thanks for having me on. Okay, what was, uh, what was the chapter that was kind of uh, most interesting for you to write? Uh, that's a good question. I mean, I, I guess the home field advantage, which sort of seems to have sort of gotten the most attention, which, you know, I, I think, it, you know, some things we were sort of able to disprove, some of this sort of sports conventional wisdom. In the case of home field advantage, there's, you know, that's, that's, not, uh, that's not a myth. I mean, there's no question it exists. It exists in you know, all sports on all continents and all contexts. I mean, there's no doubt the home team wins more often. I think with that one, the, the surprise was sort of in the why. And I, I guess we sort of assumed it existed for a number of reasons, and we kind of kept getting it wrong until we finally stumbled on uh, referee bias, which, which we ended up, you know, concluding is the real reason of striving it. But that, that was fun just because, you know, we, we didn't disprove anything. I mean, we very much there is, there is home field advantage, no question, but... I think that was a, that was a case where the why was sort of more interesting than than the first answer. One of the chapters that I, I found really really interesting was the one on the it's a shorter one, but the one on the NFL overtime. Um, how do you get, you get you kind of mentioned in the book that they have changed it? Do you think that they've changed it for the better? I, I was disappointed we didn't get to see it this uh, this postseason. But do you think they should add it um, all around? from the beginning to the end of the season? Do you like what they've done? Where, where do you stand at NFL overtime at this point? Yeah, I mean, it's, um, it's, it's interesting because I, I think no matter where you go, people are going to criticize them. I, th- I think it's crazy to have a different policy 
for the regular season than the postseason. And you're right, we, we never saw it in the postseason. But, yeah, it was disappointing. Um, yeah, but it, I mean, and I do think that, I think the postseason is the way to go. But but even that's sort of confusing. I mean, I I think you end up going, you know, it's going to mess with a lot of people's gambling lines. But I think you end <laughs> up. Uh, I think eventually we'll see what we have in college football, which is just you know we're, right. we're not going to let this ride on a coin fl- toss. We're not going to have sudden death. Just keep keep going, basically. So uh, I I, sus- I mean I, honestly, it's uh, I wonder at what level gambling lines and over-unders are driving this because it does seem to make the most sense to sort of adopt a college system. The, the coin flip is clearly flawed. And, um, you know, I, I would like to have seen how that played out in the postseason. But again, I, I don't know if you remember, I, I can't remember, was it a Jets game where the, where the kicker didn't even realize he'd won the game? Yeah. So yeah. Even, even, even the players have some uh, confusion at this point. And Donovan McNabb said in a press conference last, a couple years ago that he didn't even know that there was ties. And <laughs> Yeah, exactly, <laughs> yeah. exactly. Uh, what, Probably another, uh, something he's correcting. It. Sorry, go ahead. No, that's all right. Another big topic in the book uh, is loss aversion. Can you kind of explain that to people who haven't read the book, what loss aversion is? Yeah, I mean, lo- loss aversion is, is sort of a, it's a general sort of behavioral bias where basically we, we hate losing a dollar more than we enjoy winning a dollar. So basically the fear, of, the fear of loss is a bigger motivator than the prospect of a gain. So, for example... You know, you, you have two different diets, and on one diet, you get a reward. You know, you get $10 for every pound you lose. And on the other diet, you have to pay a penalty of $10 for every pound you gain. Mm-hmm. And the diet where you have to pay, where you actually have the, the prospect of a penalty, is much more effective. That, that has a much bigger impact on behavior. And, you know, there are all sorts of contexts, whether it's, you know, buying and selling stock or real estate. I mean, there are all sorts of contexts in which you have loss aversion, and we looked at it in in the context of sports. And, you know, we were sort of turned on to this by a study uh, of, of golf putting, of Tiger Woods putting, where if he has the identical putt, and one of them is for birdie, and one of them is a, is a par putt, he's much better on the, sort of demonstrably better on the par putt, identical putts, and he's much better at par because he's really motivated to avoid that loss of a stroke. That's a bigger motivation than the prospect of, of gaining a stroke with a birdie. And, um, you know, we looked at that in a number of contexts. I, I thought the most interesting one, which is a little hard to explain, but I think the most interesting one we saw was in the NFL, where you have a team, a team has first and goal on the one-yard line. And, you know, in three downs, they don't move the ball. It's fourth down. Another team has first and goal, you know, at the 10. They get nine yards. So <laughs> both teams have fourth and one. One of them is advanced at nine yards in three plays. The other one is advanced at no yards in three plays. And yet the team that's done worse, the team that started at the one and didn't even gain a yard, they're more likely to go for it. Hmm. And we think, again, it's loss aversion, that they've already sort of done this mental accounting for a touchdown. It would be crushing if they didn't get it. So we, even though uh, you know, even though it makes no sense, I mean, they haven't done anything in three plays. The other teams move the ball nine yards in three plays. The team that's done nothing is more likely to go for it. We think that's another expression of loss aversion. Uh, you mentioned Tiger Woods, and actually that plays into one of, our, one of the questions that was sent in by one of our listeners. Uh, he says, why do you think golfers refuse to look at all shots equal and act aggressive? I think the criticism from the media is a reason, but why let some, someone ignorant to the hard facts influence the way you play and potentially win? There's a question uh, sent in by I, one of our I, listeners. I think, I think quite... Say, say that one more time. Uh, he just... Uh, the question was... Uh, from one of our listeners is why do you think golfers refuse to look at all shots equal and act aggressive? I think the criticism from the media is a reason, 
But why let someone ignorant of the hard facts influence the way you play and potentially win? Uh, that, that's a really that's that's a really good question. I think I think golfers have this. Um, I think they sort of compartmentalize, and you know, one way to look at it is, hey, it doesn't really matter what happens on this hole per se or this shot per se. What I really care about is my best score after 18 holes or my best score after four rounds. But it's very hard to think that way. That golfers sort of go stroke by stroke, hole by hole. So. I mean, you're right. It really shouldn't matter. You should sort of look at your score cumulatively, and there's no reason to really treat two identical putts any different based on the the stroke because you're really going for the lowest cumulative score. But I think, uh, you know, golfers are superstitious, and they believe in momentum, and I think it's very hard for them to change their thinking. I think they think hole by hole, oh, I got a plus one here, I got a minus one there, instead of thinking about it more uh, in terms of the round. So, I, you know, I, I don't know. I don't, you know, I don't cover a lot of golf, and I I'm not sure how much uh, media scrutiny there really is. I, I just think uh, they, they think of it in the short term. You know, like an inv- I mean, investors do the same thing. They sort of think of this. You, know, you don't think of your retirement portfolio in 40-year increments. You sort of check it. Uh, you, know, you, you check it every month, and I think that's sort of uh, that's sort of the same mentality for golfers. All right, the sportscasters here. We're walk- uh, we're joined by the great John Wertheim talking about his book, uh, Scorecasting, which was out. Last month, you can get it on Amazon and all kinds of other places where they sell books. It's done very, very well. We actually found the book uh, right before it came out. We were we interviewed uh, one of your colleagues, Richard Deitch, and he kind of turned us on to the idea of checking out the book, and we're really glad that he did, and we really enjoy it. But uh, another question that we have from one of the listeners is uh, is about the media. And he says, statistics in your book prove that in almost every situation, a coach should pull the trigger and roll the dice on fourth down. Job security, media, and criticism aside, why don't you think an organization would adapt this strategy and run with it? And that's something you spend a lot of time talking about in the beginning of the book, and that's a high school football coach's uh, desire to always go for it on fourth down. Why don't you talk about that a little bit? Yeah, I mean, that, that was sort of one of the more interesting things, that uh, clearly you know, interests aren't always aligned, and that we, we find, and other studies too have found this, that uh, football coaches in the NFL tell them to be way too conservative. And, you know, I, I mean, it's, the, some of the analysis is a little tough because, you know, you have to take into account how good your defense is and field possession, time of the game, what the score of the game is. I mean, it's, it's, it's a fairly complex um, equation, but basically uh, teams don't go for it nearly enough. And I think that, yeah, I mean, I, I think that uh, I think your, your questioners sort of answer the question, which is uh, there's, there's an element of job security. There's an element of, of media scrutiny. That the coach who uh, you know you, you punt on fourth down and you lose the game and it's too bad you lost but you go for it and get stuffed and you lose the game and everybody's going to remember that play where you went for it and there's this pretty hard conventional wisdom that says you know unless you're a couple inches away you you get three plays and then you give the ball back and I think that's still uh, something that coaches have a hard time breaking and you know I think we, we it was interesting we looked at uh, one coach that that actually plays the math pretty well now is Belichick. Yeah, but when he was coaching the the Cleveland Browns and didn't have the Super Bowl rings and didn't have the job security and the team was, you know, winning seven games and not twelve or thirteen games, he wasn't nearly as aggressive. So, um, you know, it's it's funny because Nate, you know, we, we we said I think in the book we said name name another profession where you could make sort of chances that don't maximize your your chances of success. You could sort of make these suboptimal choices and not pay a price. I mean, imagine if you're you know the the doctor 
designing your cancer treatment said, well, statistically, you could go with plan A, but in my gut, I think we should do B. <laughs> um, you, you probably wouldn't tolerate it. But in, in football, we see it all the time. The, um, I, th- I think it was the Bears-Packers game where there were, there were seven punts that game where the optimal decision would have been to go for it. Uh, but, you know, it's a game and the Super Bowl is on the line and coaches don't want to be, uh, you know, they don't want to be accountable for, for don't want to be pure risky, which is one of the worst things you can be in sports as a gambler or, uh, you know, the mad scientist rap. You'd rather uh, play conservative and, you know, no, no one's killing Lovey Smith for uh, four punts where he should have gone for it. If he had gone for it four times and missed instead, uh, he'd be paying a much bigger price. Now that the book's been out for a little while and it's sold pretty well and it's being read by a lot of people, have you been met with any controversy like from any of the things that have come to light, maybe particularly like from referees or anything? Like, and you guys do a good job to say that most of the biases are just human nature, but it's still probably not a popular thing for them to hear. Um, yeah, it's, it's funny. I'm, I'm on a panel this weekend at this MIT conference with uh, – Cuban and, and Mike Carey, an NFL ref, so we'll sort of see how, uh, <laughs> how how that plays out. But no, I mean, I, I mean, I do think one thing important about the, I mean, no question, um, you know, the the refs take some heat in our book, but I think we try and make the point that you know, no one's alleging corruption. Right, These guys right. are good at their job. It's just kind of, as you said, it's just sort of basic human human behavior. But I think, you know, I think people have taken issue with um, probably more than the refs, probably the momentum chapter where we uh, you know, are pretty mm-hmm. skeptical of this sort of hot hand notion. And pe- people have said, look, if you play sports at any level, you know sometimes you feel it and, uh, and sometimes you don't. And, and you know, it seems like most athletes and coaches very much believe in momentum and the hot hand. And I think, you know, I mean, I, I think there, there's no denying that streaks exist. I mean, if you, if you go four for four, you're, you're seeing the ball and, you know, hitting it better than you go over for four. Our, our point was just that, it's not necessarily predictive. You know, you get that fourth hit, and it's not necessarily predictive of what you're going to do in that fifth at bat. Um, so I think that may be where, where some of the discrepancy lies. But, uh, no, I mean, I, I, think, I think, honestly, the, I think the momentum chapter has probably generated more controversy than any of the officiating stuff. Did you guys uh, go into looking at the idea of being clutch at all? I remember a couple of years ago in the magazine, I think it was Tom Verducci wrote an article at the beginning of baseball season that there's really no statistics proving the idea of being clutch. Um, and when you look at it, actually nobody is all that clutch. Did you guys go in? Did you look at any data or, you know, around the idea of clutch? Um, it, it's, we're, uh, we're saving that one for the sequel, but okay. I mean, that's, that's a tough, you know, that's a tough metric in a lot of sports because, um, it, I mean, b- baseball is where we look at it most, but you know, in basketball, who's, who's, uh, you know, who's choking the guy who misses the jumper or the guy who passes it up. Right. So, um, I mean, it's, it's tough to sort of isolate variables with that, but no, I mean, I think, I think that's something we're, uh, we'll be, we'll be looking at that more. No question. Along the same lines, uh, you compare your book to like a Mythbusters for sports. Were there any myths that you kind of thought you'd be able to bust that you couldn't or are still trying to? Uh, that's a good question. I mean, I think, you know, I, I, I don't know. I mean, I think we sort of busted some of them, you know, the, the no I in team, for example, which is pretty, um, it's, it sounds good, but you <laughs> to have a successful team. You need, you need the eye. You need, you need that star. Um, Others were just sort of interesting, you know, defense wins championships to just kind of look right, at it right. and just kind of pick it apart. Um, I'm trying to think what else. No, I mean, I mean, again, sometimes the more interesting discussion was just sort of in the why. That uh, I mean, I don't think it shocks sports fans to know that home teams win or that NFL coaches 
tend to skew conservative. But I think I think the why was was really more interesting than, than the initial conclusion. I'm, I'm trying to think what else uh, in terms of really busting. Um, no, I mean I think you know we, we had some interesting things. I thought on you know when, when is the right time to pull the goalie or the fact right. that NBA yeah. coaches tend to leave stars in foul trouble in the game too long. Um, which is all, which is all interesting. Again, there's sort of this this old push pull between, you know, I don't care what the math says, I trust my gut, which is always kind of the uh, the objection you run up against that a lot of these decision makers and coaches and athletes and uh, you know owners basically say, you know, let, let the geeks run their numbers. I just I know it when I see it. Have you had any positive feedback from coaches saying something like along the lines of, wow, I never realized that before. Maybe I will pull my goalie uh, 30 seconds earlier or leave my star player in, in foul trouble. Um, yeah, I, I, I'm at, uh, I got to be careful with what I can. <laughs> well, right, I, don't right. I don't know which Without naming private. There's an ACC football coach who's vowed to uh, put score casting to use in the fall. We'll be eager to see if he sticks to it. Um, you know, I mean, we'd heard sort of Jason Garrett's reading the book and, Tom Crean, who coaches Indiana, and a couple couple major leaguers, so um, it'll uh, it'll be interesting. But we're uh, we we have our eye on a certain uh, ACC football program. <laughs> Good question here from uh, actually it's from my brother uh, who will be attending Yale. It's a two parter. Uh, he's going to Yale next year on a hockey scholarship. We're proud of him here on the on the Sportscasters. Well, not exactly a scholarship, but um, he says every chapter in the book identifies the truth that many refuse to accept and believe in. What do you think people of importance, especially the media, refuse to adapt to hard facts and numbers that prove many of the ageless ways wrong? Um, that's a really good question. Congrats <laughs> to your brother, by the way. Good, good yeah. hockey program, too. Yeah, the, uh, this is actually part B of the question is, will you be there when Yale wins the national championship this <laughs> April? <laughs> <laughs> tell, tell your brother, uh, well, I, I got to be careful. We're, we're on live air. I hope, uh, I, ho- I hope players on this year's team, uh, eh, never mind. I, I, <laughs> now tell them offline, we'll, we'll talk sometime. Okay. Yeah, we're, we're rooting for Yale. Good, good win over Princeton last weekend. Um, two weekends ago. So uh, what, was, what was the... Um, uh, his question was, uh, he says, every chapter in the book identifies the truth that many refuse to accept and believe in. What do you think people of importance, especially the media, refuse to adapt to the hard facts and numbers that prove many of the angle, ageless ways wrong? Yeah, I mean, I, I think that sports are such a, you know, they're sort of physical by nature and sort of primal. And I, I think I said to someone, I said, you know, we've all been playing Little League. We've all played sports. We haven't all traded options or, you know, done real estate development. So we all sort of, we've been inoculated. You know, we've sort of been inculcated with sports for, for many years. And we, we sort of think we know the right, you know, we've watched hundreds and hundreds of hours. And we think we just sort of know the right way and I think there's still this element of sort of stop stop poisoning my pleasure with your homework right that sort of leave your numbers out of it this is supposed to be fun and instinctive and putting uh, your analytics to use is like you know it's like trying to quantify jazz like sports is physical and it's sort of instinctive and I, I know when to punt and I know when to go for it and I know when to take my star player out and I don't care what the numbers say there's a sort of resistance I think because you're almost People feel like you're sort of poisoning, you know, you're sort of poisoning their pleasure with uh, with with your geeky science. <laughs> but um, you know, and, I, and you know, honestly, there's there are financial reasons sometimes. Uh, you know, if you're if you're the Knicks broadcaster, you want to frame the game as positively as possible. So you tell me 
Carmelo Anthony made four of his last six jumpers, you don't say he made four of his last 11. <laughs> so, I mean, I think some of it is just sort of look at people's incentives. But, but I do also think that there's this, still this resistance to, uh, to numbers because of what sports are, and we think we know it. We're not, we're not talking about trading futures here. We're not talking about uh, you know, hedge funds. We're talking about whether we should bat the pitcher ninth. And, uh, and we, all think, we all think we know better. The Sportscasters here with John Wertheim. We've got a few more minutes. Uh, just an incredible guest kind of finishing out our murderer's row of sports journalists. We had three weeks ago Joe Poznanski. Last week we had Lee Jenkins. And this week we have the great John Wertheim. I want to ask you a couple of other things. Um, let's start first with I was really, really, really enjoyed the piece that you did this week on uh, Mike Dayton that was in the magazine and there was a video online. And this is actually a story as a hockey fan I've been following for a long time. Um, why don't you just uh, tell our listeners who maybe don't know much about Mike Danson, a little bit about that story, and uh, I have a couple uh, follow-up questions for you then, too. Um, yeah, no, thanks. I appreciate that. Uh, Mike Danton was in the NHL, young player, um, you know, not a star, but you know, solid, up-and-coming player, and he, he was arrested um, you know, six, seven years ago for uh, this sort of strange basically hiring a potential hitman to kill someone. And it was sort of this very strange story, and right. he pled guilty and was sent to, you know, federal prison. And the story just sort of faded from view. There were, um, you know, there's sort of periodic reports, but he sort of went to jail and that was that. And I think in Canada and in hockey circles, they probably followed it a little better. But I think to the average American sports fan, it was just sort of one of those stories that flashes across the radar. And then people say, oh, yeah, I kind of sort of remember that. And, uh, so I, I had tried to correspond with him when he was in jail and, and didn't have much success. But then when he got out, um, he now plays hockey in, in Canada. You can right. play in college. Canadian in, in universities, Can right. Yeah, he sort of still had, despite having played in the NHL, he still had eligibility. And uh, basically went up there, spent some time with him, and found that, you know, there's, there's still some issues there, clearly. But, um, you know, and, and he's, he's, you know, despite having played in the NHL, he's, he's not sort of tearing up this league. He's a, he's a good hockey player on the team that won the championship, but he's not, not a star or anything. But he is an academic star. And he's 30 right. years old now. He did six years in jail. And he's basically just tearing it up in, in the classroom. And, uh, you know, may well go on and get a Ph.D. in psychology, but he's really sort of turned his life around and has turned into this, this really star standout academic, this, this great student. So, uh, yeah, that was, that was sort of a fun, that was, that was a fun story because I didn't, you know, honestly, I didn't, I'd never met him before the story, didn't really know a whole lot about it, and it ended up, you know, being, being uh, you know, pr pretty intriguing. What did you find out about Canadian college hockey being around it? I mean, my impression of it has always been it's a lot of players who played in the OHL or in another league in the Canadian Hockey League, the, you know, in the Quebec League or the Western Hockey League, and kind of end up going to college 24, 25, 26, or whenever their eligibility um, is up, and then they play a little hockey there to finish out their career. What did you find out about the Canadian College Hockey League? Yeah, I mean, I think that's pretty accurate. But, you know, honestly, uh, American hockey players are getting older, too. Right. Um, you know, there, there seemed to be a very close-knit team, but, but instead, you're right, you, you think of college sports as sort of guys gunning for the pros and, you know, kid, kids right out of high school who are sort of in this, this middle safe haven between sort of high school and the pros and see if they can make it. And you're right, this would seem to be the opposite of guys who were in their mid-20s who were sort of coming to grips with the fact that, you know, they were going to have to get an education because they weren't going to uh, make it to the NHL. I mean, ni nicest guys you'll ever meet, but, uh, yeah, this was not a bunch of sort of 19-year-olds who... Uh, we're hoping to impress the scouts. 
Right. Yeah, it's interesting because in the, you know if uh, if a hockey player like my brother, for example, he played through high school at a prep school, and then he played two years in the USHL, and he's going to be a 20-year-old freshman at Yale next year, you know, but he's still on the way up, and then Canadian hockey is kind of vice versa, where, you know, they run out of options, and then they kind of just do this to finish off and get some colleges kind of like a backdrop. Yeah, exactly. I mean, I, th- I think there's sort of enough success stories that sort of you can keep hope alive, but yeah, I mean, there, there are guys on teams who have kids and wives, and uh, I mean, in a way, it's a nice option. But, um, it, yeah, it's, it's a little different from the U.S. hockey where, you know, the, the Yale team will put a, put a number of guys in the NHL, for example. Right. How, wh- as far as Danton, where, what, what do you think the future has in hold, in hold for, for Mike Danton? I mean, you know, real, realistically, the getting back to the NHL, probably a long shot. He's, th- he's 30 years old, and he, you know, again, went five, six years without, you know, without skating. Right. But, um, I, you know, maybe he could play professionally in Europe, but I think he's really kind of been awakened. I mean, his grades are just off the charts, that he's got, you know, his, his faculty members were lining up to tell me that he's the best student they've ever taught. Wow. And I, I, th- I think he's taken, like, 13 classes, and his lowest grade is an A-, minus, and I think he wants to be a... Uh, you know, I think he has ambitions of being a sports psychologist. He said, "Look, I'm going to have the academic credentials. I've been, you know, I've scored goals in you know Stanley Cup playoff games. Uh, put together my experience, my uh, you know, having played at the highest level and then having these degrees. And you know, I, I think he has a pretty bright future as a as a sports psychologist. I think there's absolutely think no doubt yeah. that that article will find its way in the best American sports writing of 2011." But when I was but researching for this story, story, I read an I read article that you had wrote that was that in the Best in American the Sports Writing of 2009, and that was called Breaking the Bank. Can you tell us a little bit about that story? It's really fascinating. Oh, okay. No, I, I, got a good, I, uh, I went out with, um, I don't know if you're a fighting, you're a UFC fan. Well, I'm not, but some of our fans are, actually, yeah. So they'll, they'll appreciate this. I went out with uh, Chuck Liddell a few years ago, mm-hmm. and I said, whatever happened to that guy Lee Murray? And he started laughing. He said, you never heard the story of Lee Murray? And I said, no, whatever happened to that guy? You know, he was, he was a British fighter. He was training in Iowa. And he was sort of, you know, he, he did well in the UFC. He had a UFC fight. And then he sort of fell off the, the map. And I said to Chuck Liddell, whatever happened to that guy? And Chuck Liddell said, I don't even want to tell you. Just l- trust me. When you go home, look it up. Right. Well, right. it turned out Lee, Lee Murray, who was this, uh, this UFC fighter, had pulled off the largest bank heist in the history of the Western world. I mean, this was, you know, $100 million, you know, it was right. in Great Britain, so it was in pounds, but, you know, it ended up being a $100 million bank heist. And, uh, you know, no, no, one got hil- no one got killed, no one got hurt, and he escaped to Morocco. And so I sort of did this story, and basically what happened is Lee Murray is this, this fighter, but it's sort of a wild man, and he ends up getting stabbed, and so- he can't fight. He says, what am I going to do with the rest of my life? And, uh, not that long after, he appears to knock off uh, basically this, this sort of exchange where, where currency is dropped, this sort of currency drop, and uh, he masterminds this, this great heist and uh, escapes to Morocco, and uh, it was a wild story. I mean, they're, you know, Britain's trying to extradite him now. And yeah. Actually, Darren Aronofsky has the rights to this story. Uh, with any luck, they'll, uh, Darren Aronofsky will make... Uh, Breaking the bank into a movie one of these days, but that was uh, yeah, that was a fun story. That was a wild one. Okay, well, we're okay. starting to get a little bit of uh, technical difficulties here, but uh, I want to really, really thank uh, John Wertheim for joining us. It's been a thrill, uh, John. Uh, we really appreciate you. Hope we can have you on another time. 
Yeah, no, anytime. Thanks so much, and uh, say tell your brother good luck. All right, thanks. Oh, the drama of that music can only mean one thing, Donnie. What's that? Book club. Absolutely. <laughs> we had John Wertheim on earlier on the show, and we finally closed off our first book from the book club, Scorecasting. I thought it went great. I had a lot of fun with it. Uh, I think some people on the message board had fun with it. My brother had a great time with it. Um, we're going to try something a little bit different this month for it. Here's the idea. The last few weeks, we've had some really big writers on the show. We've had Joe Posnanski, we've had Lee Jenkins, we've had John Wertheim. And in my research, preparing for these interviews, I kind of kept coming back to the best American sports writing anthologies because... These guys have been in here. They've they've been in it multiple times. John Wertheim's been in it four times, as I said earlier. And the, the anthology has really been growing on me. And I thought it'd be cool if the book of the month was the best American sports writing anthology. Now, here's what it's going to be. You can pick out any book that's been in. It's been around. I would say let's, let's keep the range from 1994, which is supposed to be the best one. Okay. To 2010. And they're really cheap to get. You can buy them on Amazon for a penny. Oh yeah, yeah. Was, just about yeah. any, just about any, you know, any year you can get for a penny or so. So pick up a copy of the best American sports writing anthology and find a couple cool essays, you know, or stories, so to speak, in there that we can talk about. And when we have the roundtable for the book, like we did earlier tonight with Wertheim, we'll just kind of talk about the stories that we, we found. Yeah, and I think it'd be pretty cool. We're gonna, <laughs> you know, um, read some really good writing, and then hopefully. The series editor is Glenn Stout, and uh, hopefully we could get Glenn on to talk about it with us, or, um, yeah, that, that would be great. And then each year they have a, a guest editor, um, and uh, some of the names are, are Buzz Bissinger, uh, David Moranis, uh, Peter Gammons, I think, is this year's. Um, so we should be able to have a little bit of fun with this. Um, you know, go get yourself an anthology. Uh, find a cool story, write about it on the message board, and uh, let's see what we come up with. Let's kind of try to expose ourselves to more and more great sports writing because more and more often I realize that this show has really been about getting really great sports writers on. Right. So that's the idea. Let's see how it works. It's a little bit different, but you know, this show is kind of about being different. So let's give it a try. What do you think? Sounds good. All right, our next guest is from Long Island, New York, and graduated from Nova Southeastern University in Fort Lauderdale, Florida, where he studied sports management. Today, he works as an associate editor and contributor to the Puck Daddy blog on Yahoo Sports. A warm sportscaster's welcome to Sean Leahy. How are you doing today, Sean? Hey, how are you? Very, very, very good. Very excited about here in Buffalo, New York, about the ownership change and about uh, our newly acquired Brad Boys. What, what can you tell... Uh, Buffalo fans about boys and what kind of player we can expect tonight when he makes his debut in a Sabres uniform. Well, he's a guy that you know, he's a Florida goal scorer in the past. Um, 
And if he's playing along, playing with the right guys, I think he could be that guy for the Sabres. I saw today he's going to be playing with Connolly and Tyler Ennis. So, um, you know, hopefully he's able to mesh with those two guys because he had a lot of success in St. Louis when he was uh, a couple years ago with Paul Curry and Keith Kachuk. And once those guys kind of went away, he struggled a bit. So maybe this uh, this could be one of those change of scenery deals where he goes to Buffalo, kind of gets a little kick in the ass, and uh, Tyler, um, Tyler Ennis and, and Tim Connick can maybe help spark him because he has the potential. He, he can be a good player for the Sabres, and ho- hopefully he turns things around for him. Were you surprised that the Sabres didn't move Conley? Um, a, a little bit, but I, I think it's a, a slow process of, of how they're going to change over, over the roster over the next few months now that uh, Terry Pegula's in and Darcy Rieger has the, has the extension. Um, I mean, they're still just you know they're, they're two points out of a playoff spot right now in the East, so I don't know if they want to be selling off some of their bigger bigger assets now. Um, you know, want to keep them on board for that final playoff push. What were your overall impressions of the switching gears from the Sabres? I just wanted to get a little bit of that off the top as we are from Buffalo, but switching gears from the Sabres, what were just your overall impressions of kind of a trade deadline day that wasn't in a way? Well, I, I think deep down we, we all knew it was kind of going to be a, a very slow day because we saw all of the big trades, like the Cabaret deal, the Eric Johnson deal, the boys deal, even though it was Sunday night. They all happened the weeks leading up to yesterday. And at that point, I mean, <laughs> there wasn't a lot, of, a lot of guys out there that were left to be dealt. And you know, obviously, uh, it was the lowest amount of trades. It was 16 trades. It was the lowest amount of trades since uh, the 99-2000 season where there was, I think it was 12 or, or something like that. Uh, so it was a slow day, and yeah, everyone was on Twitter and uh, watching TSN, Sportsnet, and NHL Network, just waiting for something to happen and just kind of getting bogged down in rumors. But I, I think, like, like I said, I think deep down we, we kind of expected it to be slow. And you know, luckily that that Dustin Penner deal came down a little bit later in the day to kind of spice things up a, a little bit. Was there anything that you were following during the day or maybe the day before that you kind of expected to happen and it kind of fell apart or anything you may have heard that was close but just for whatever reason didn't didn't happen on the deadline day? There's a lot of talk about Alex Hemsky uh, in Hemsky, Edmonton, yep. uh, where he was going to go. I know yesterday morning, I believe it was Bob McKenzie or maybe Jim Matheson of the Edmonton Journal uh, talked about how the Predators were uh, were kind of kicking the tires on Hemsky and, and maybe bringing him in because the Predators, they have such a balanced attack. They don't really have that one go-to guy in offense. So bringing in Hemsky would not only help that, uh, but also be a, a good sign to their fans that you know, hey, we're we're committed to winning, and you know, we don't mind spending a little bit of money to, to help this team succeed. Um, there was that, and there was also, you know, I'm, I'm a Penguins fan, so I was kind of following what they were doing. There was some talk that you know, after they brought in James Neal and Matt Neskin last week, that they may add another player yesterday uh, with all their injuries. You know, there's talk of maybe another D-man. Uh, there's slight rumblings that they're in on Dustin Penner. Uh, but unfortunately, you know, Ray Shiro said at a press conference last night that you know he uh, he was taking phone calls, making phone calls. But unfortunately, the uh, the market out there for some of these guys that he was targeting was uh, was a little too rich for his blood. As a fan, are you excited about Neil? Uh, were you okay with giving up Goligowski for Neil? I have a good friend who's a Penguin season ticket holder, and he said that a lot of people were a little disappointed to let go of Goligowski. You haven't quite warmed up to Neil yet. Yeah, but you have to you have to get to give something to get something, and both teams dealt from an area of strength 
to help a weakness. The Stars needed a puck-moving defenseman and a guy who could pot some goals from blue line, and they're going to get that in Alex Goligosky. The Penguins, obviously, they've been ravaged with injury this season. Uh, they've been obviously looking for a, a winger for a Sidney Crosby or maybe even a second-line winger for getting to Malkin next season. They have that in James Neal. And with their blue line banged up, you know, uh, Brooks Orpik is out for the next three to four weeks with a broken finger. You know, Matt Niskan can go, go in here and, and fill in. And they also, they also picked up uh, Alexei Kovla for a seventh rounder. So I like what they did. Uh, it's going to be interesting to see how this team plays going forward, uh, especially with Crosby out. And who knows when he's going to be back, if he's back at all this season. Uh, so, uh, you know, they, I think the Penguins and, you know, Ray Shearer did, did a good job this, uh, this trade deadline. Now, you mentioned the other team in that deal, the Stars. Did they make a mistake in not moving Richards? They're kind of in a tough spot because they are still technically a playoff team, but now they're going to lose him for nothing. Well, that's that's what some people think. Um, but like you said, it, it appears that it's a very tough spot they are in with the concussion with Richards, um, especially if you're a team that's interesting, like the Rangers and the Kings are obviously uh, very interested in him. I mean, deal for a guy like Brad Richards, he's got a concussion, He's been skating, which which means you know he's somewhat close to returning. Uh, I think they actually said he might be back in the next week or so. Um, but obviously, it's a concussion that we don't really know <laughs> all too much about concussions being uh, armchair quarterbacks here. But uh, I, I I think they made the right move. And I, deep down, as much as people are connecting uh, Brad Richards with John Tortorella in New York and how. He, either he was going to be dealt to the Rangers yesterday or they're going to sign him. He's going to sign there uh, on July 1st. I, I, I just think he, he sees uh, they got a good team there. Uh, Carrie Letton's been playing great. they got Lou Erickson, who's, who's an underrated superstar. And they have some great pieces there. And Joe Neundike and uh, Mark Crawford deserve some credit for, for turning that franchise around. And I, deep down, I think Richards will re-sign there. It's going to be obviously a long-term deal. And you and I may have to move some pieces to to fit them under the salary cap going forward. But um, I, I don't think you and I did a bad job not not dealing them off yesterday. Now, Don mentioned July first. Since the trade deadline was kind of slower, do you expect July first to be that much more intense and that much more busy in terms of players moving teams or re-signing things of that nature? Uh, yeah, it's always oh, because you know a lot of guys are coming off contracts in the summer and a lot of teams are buying out guys, releasing guys and kind of reshaping their rosters for the season, for the upcoming season. But if you look at the, the free agents uh, right now that are scheduled to be unrestricted and restricted for, for this summer, uh, it's a thin crop. Uh, so I, I don't think uh, the first few days in July uh, are going to be as exciting um, <laughs> watching guys try and try and sign here and there. I mean, it's going to be the Brad Richards show uh, again, like it was yesterday. But probably by July first, he'll be healthy, and you know we'll have a better idea of his future. But uh, just looking at the list, I mean, there's there's not a lot of big time names out there that that really kind of get you excited to to wake up early on July first and turn on NHL Network or TSN and and see where see which guys go where. Since there is less big name UFAs, do you think you'll see more offer sheets to the, any of the RFAs out there, or no? I mean, it almost seems like an no, unwritten I'm, rule that you don't do it. Yeah, exactly. It's like an unwritten rule ever since the uh, the Brian Burke 
boilers and ducting with Dustin Penner three or four years ago. And Vanek. Uh, it, does, it does seem like some kind of an, uh, an unwritten rule that teams don't do that. Uh, but there's big names that are RFAs this summer. I mean, Shea Weber, Steven Stamkos, Drew Dowdy, but, I mean, Zach Greasy. But you got to imagine those guys are, are, are going to resign with, with their teams. Um, and, and I just think there's this, this culture in the NHL of, you know, the unwritten rule where, where teams don't throw an offer sheet at a guy. So I think that'll be respected once again. It's funny, most of those players you just mentioned are from the first round of 2003, and it, ma- it makes me think of Florida, who apparently are trying to set the Guinness Book of World Records for least amount of fans in the stands. Um, they almost remind me of the team from Major League. I'm not really sure what they're doing, but uh, they did hold on to Stephen Weiss, which kind of surprised me, and also they uh, made the dream come true for Hugh Jessman, the only uh, player from the 2003 uh, draft to who hadn't played an NHL game yet in the first round. What, what do you? What's going on in Florida? You know, it's a tough market, and I, I, I lived down there for five years. I went to tons and tons of Panther games, and it, it can be a good market. Uh, we saw that in the 90s when they made that cup run and they had a couple playoff teams. Um, when Burry was on but, the team? Yeah, when Tyler Burry was there and John Van Beesbrook and, and all those guys. Um, but the thing about South Florida is that it's a fair weather market. It, it's really just, just a dolphin. It's, it's just a football town. Uh, dolphin, it's Dolphins, and okay, if the Heat are winning, then we'll go see them. If the Panthers are winning and the Marlins are winning, we'll go see them. Um, so if, if you're winning, outside of the outside of the Dolphins, if, you, if you're a winning team, people are going to go. Cause, uh, remember, look, beginning of the season, there were empty seats at Heat games, and they have right. you know, the biggest yep. star next to Kobe Bryant in the NBA. Um, so I think. Uh, you know, they're going on, I think it's 10 or 11 years, they haven't been in the playoffs, and they're obviously in the middle of a yet an umpteenth rebuild down there. But, you know, they have, I like David Booth, I love Stephen Weiss. Uh, there's talk that maybe they're going to try and sign, re-sign Thomas Motoon, who they didn't trade yesterday, he was another guy who could have been on the move. Um, have a couple pieces there, but they're going to sort of line up at the moment, it just probably, you know, looks like an AHL lineup right now. Yeah, yeah it does. Uh, But they're going to, they're going to have, Tons and tons of money to spend this summer uh, in the free agent market, which unfortunately, like we just discussed, right. it's a little thin. thin. Yeah. So, um, you know, maybe downtown can uh, can you know maybe make some make an additional couple of trades over the summer to kind of beef up that lineup. I think it might it might be a couple of years until the, the Panthers are true playoff contenders. Yeah, and I understand uh, kind of retooling, rebuilding your roster, but the move that was the weirdest move of the day to me was uh, Brian Allen for Samsonov. Did they think they could get nothing? I mean, Samsonov's a UFA, right? Yeah, I mean, that just may be the you know, town's way of bringing on an expiring contract to free up more cap room. Yeah. I, you know, they're, they're, not, they're not going anywhere. Brian Allen, you know, Carolina could definitely use some more depth in the blue line as they fight for one of the spots in the East. And Samsonov, like you see, he's got two months left on his contract, and that's it. So it just could be a case of talent trying to free up some more space for the summer. You know, I, I'm just looking at the standings here, and the Western Conference is insane. Fourth place, Phoenix has 76, and 11th place, Anaheim has 71. Who do you think is in position to kind of hang on, and who, who do you think might move up, move out? How do you see the West kind of playing out with all it's these teams? In, oh, it's insane. I've never seen anything like this. Yeah, you have two wins, and you go from 11th to 4th like in the span of three days. It's crazy. Um, I think the top three are safe. Vancouver, Detroit, San Jose, they're fine. 
Uh, I think Phoenix will be fine. They've been playing very well. Uh, Chicago, I think uh, they've turned things around. They're on a little streak right now. I think they're solidified. Despite the uh, the route last night, I think L.A. is going to be fine. Dustin Penner should kind of energize that last a little bit. Um, they, they should be all right. And the final two, I mean, Calgary's been playing well, and Dallas has been slumping. Uh, but Dallas and Brad Richards back in the next week or so, so that, that should maybe boost him. I think that'll be enough to kind of keep uh, in the mix, and I think final spot. I think it's going to come down to you know Nashville and, and Calgary. You know Minnesota. Who knows with with Minnesota that they're they're funny. And Anaheim, uh, they've just been derailed once uh, Jonas Halo went out yeah. you know, with his balance issues. So uh, I think uh, the final two spots. I think Dallas and Nashville will find a way in. In the East, it's not quite as exciting, but still 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 interesting. How do you think the bottom bottom half of the Eastern Conference will shake out. I think the top six are good and you know, I had the I had the Rangers pegged to if they made the playoffs to be potentially a, a team like the Flyers last year. They snuck in and get on a run uh to the Stanley Cup possibly, but they've just been hurt with injuries. You know, they they lost Mark Stahl and uh I, they lost Marty Biron yesterday to a, to a collarbone injury. So Henrik Lundqvist really doesn't have any insurance, so he's going to be handling the road the load the rest of the way. Apparently, um, I don't know if that's going to be too much for him. He, he might get tired. So I, I could definitely see them slipping out. Carolina is always a funny team. They they always they're always in this position at this time. Of year. They're always fighting for a playoff spot, but they they always find their way in. Um, so I think they'll make it. I think that final spot. I mean, I really think it's just between the, the Sabres and the Leafs for, for the seed of the seventh or the eighth spot. You know, the Leafs have been playing pretty hot, and the Sabres have yeah. been playing well. Um, so it's going to be it's going to be down to to one of those two teams, and I, I just think I would go with the Sabres just because they they have a little bit more experience than the Leafs. Interesting. Uh, Sedin's having a great season again. Uh, Stamkos has forty one goals. When we start to think of Hart Trophy, those are kind of some of the names that come out. Patrick Sharp, maybe. Who do you think uh, is in the driver's seat to possibly win the Hart Trophy this year? Yeah, it, it seems like uh, you know if you win the Art Ross or, or the Rocket Richard, you're you're guaranteed to to win the uh, the Hart Trophy. And I, I think it's going to come down to it's probably going to be the Sedins and Stamkos as, as the three Finals, finalists. Yeah. I think if uh, Stamkos Stamkos is most likely going to hit fifty, he's got like twenty games left, and like you say, he's got forty-one goals. Uh, so I think if he hits 50 and he's going to win another Rashard Trophy, I think it'll be him because Tampa's going to be in the playoffs and that team's really turned things around this season. Earlier in the show, we had on John Wertheim, who's just an incredible writer from Sports Illustrated. And I don't know if you read this week his article uh, or saw the video online uh, about the Mike Danton story or how familiar you are with that, but it's kind of fascinated us here at the Sportscasters. I just kind of wanted to get your opinion if you think Mike Danton will ever be able to make his way all the way back to the NHL, or uh, you know what your thoughts are on the story and and what. Yeah, you yeah, it's 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 a fascinating story, and I, I saw John's uh, the piece and, and the, the video that accompanied it. It's just it's just fascinating. Yeah, uh, to see to read about you know Mike Danton and, and David Frost and just that whole weird relationship uh, and how it's played out over the years, but I don't. I don't think he makes it back to the NHL. I mean, maybe uh, some minor pro, you know, league 
you know, brings him on for 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 a deal for for a season or so. Uh, but I, I just think there's too much of a taint on that guy's past that it'd be too risky for any NHL team to to make an attempt to sign him. Okay, uh, let's see. Anything else NHL wise? We got the playoffs. We got the points leaders. We discussed all that. As a what? Penguins fan, are you worried about Crosby? Good question. Um. A little, just I mean, I'm I'm worried for any player, especially a guy like Crosby, who's 23 years old, um, that has concussion issues, and he's been out. We're going on two months now. Right, it's kind of lingering. Really hasn't even worked out. Um, I mean, as a Penguins fan, I I, I wouldn't be upset if they shut him shut down, him down yeah. for the season. Just said, hey, you know what? Just take the summer, get healthy, and we'll, we'll come back this year because you know they already don't have Malkin, so that's already a, a blow to, to their offense. And right. It's just too big of a risk. It, Crosby's the crown jewel of that franchise. He's the face, face of the league, the team, really. Also, the NHL, yeah. and you know, to to it, it, with all the, the the focus on concussions these days, I think it's just play it safe. I mean, we saw guys like Ian Lapierre and Mark Savard come back and suffer, you know, do even more damage to themselves coming back early. Even Lindros and, and know, LaFontaine a few years ago. You yeah, know, it, yeah. Yeah, exactly. And, and the, the Lapierre and Savard cases, I mean, those guys, their careers may be done. I mean, and especially Savard because I think he's still, you know, he's in his early 30s, Lapierre's a little bit older. And you know, why take that risk on a 23-year-old kid? It's just not worth it. How much does Arnott help the Caps? I think he helps them a lot. They've been looking for the second line center forever, and mm-hmm. you know he's a guy. He's won a cup. He, he's got plenty of playoff experience. He's thirty six years old. He, he's been around the league. He, he can score goals, and you know I, I know the the Caps. They've kind of pulled back their reins on, on their offensive style of play this season. Uh, they've they kind of had a more defensive mindset, uh, but I, I think he fills a need that they've had for a very long time. So that's only going to benefit them uh, once the end of the playoffs. Okay, Stanley Cup prediction. If I had had the gun to your head right now, two teams and right winner. now, ooh, definitely Vancouver in the West. I I watch them when I can. They're just just awesome to watch them, and I think this year the the uh, the playoff cobwebs are, are shake are a little longer shakes those playoff cobwebs. And in the East, um, I'm still on the fence about. Philadelphia and Boston. I, I like the Carvalho deal for for Boston. I think he's got points in each of the games he's played so far for them. And Timmy Thomas is going to win another Vezina Trophy this year. But Philly is just so deep up and down that lineup. If uh, you know, if Bobrovsky or Boucher or whoever the hell they have in that <laughs> in the playoffs <laughs> can hold on, yeah. uh, can, can get things going consistently, you know they're definitely going to be a, a threat. But if you had a gun to my head right now in the East, I'd definitely say Boston. And then for the Cup, I, I still got to go with Vancouver. Now it's interesting, kind of the last thing here. You mentioned that you mentioned you thought Vancouver might might play in the Cup. There's a possibility that the first time Vancouver is on national TV in the United States is you know Game One of the Stanley Cup Finals. Do you think that? What do you think about the way the NHL uses NBC and uses versus and kind of the limited act? I mean, versus is a little bit better. They'll show a Lightning game here and there. You know, kind of mix some teams in the mix, but NBC it's pretty much strictly, you know, Flyers, Flyers Van- Penguins. Penguins, Capitals, Chicago. You know, what do you think about right. that? I mean, you you risk if Vancouver makes the Stanley Cup. You know, they're they're an exciting team. I don't know why they don't get a team like that on more. You know, what do you think of right. the with the league's choices and coverage? 
I think, you know, at the end of the day, it's a business. And NBC, they, they, help, they help promote hockey versus they help promote hockey, but at the end of the day, they got to sell ads, and they want the best matchups possible. Um, I know a lot of people complain about you know, the matchups on, on NBC. It's always Pittsburgh or Washington or Detroit or whoever, but it, you know, people forget that when ESPN had the rights and ESPN2, a lot of those games were Flyers, Red Wings, Rangers, yeah, you know, the ESPN games, especially back, yep. back then, back in the nineties. I mean, obviously ESPN too. They they showed a lot more games, you know, a lot a lot of the Western teams and a lot more, you know, none of the the, the big name teams, you know, the big the big market teams. But I I think you know their their goal is to to get the best ratings and you know, if they're throwing a Vancouver game on NBC, I mean that that's going to split their their market share in half. I mean they're they're only going to get one of the other team's market that the Canucks are playing. So right. Um, it's tough. tough I mean, the, the the geeks like us, the hockey geeks like us, would love to see Vancouver, you know, play on a Sunday afternoon on NBC against you know the Flyers or, or whoever, you know. Right. But uh, you know, they're 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 trying to market to everybody. They're trying to market to a, a bigger base and other than just. So then, why not throw Nashville on, for example? I mean, that, I haven't I haven't seen them even mentioned. I mean, they're having a good season. Why not throw Nashville on? Well, it, it, one, it, it's Nashville, and two, I mean, they're, they're not a high-profile team. Uh, that's, that's the thing. So they go for those big markets. They want that big rating. Um, and, and like I said, it, it, as much as uh, puckheads like us want to see a team like that on a Sunday afternoon, I mean, they're, they're, they're kind of geared. They've geared their coverage towards the casual fan. I mean, just look at their broadcast. I mean, they're, sometimes they're explaining icing to people <laughs> during, yeah. during the period. So uh, the best you know, was, they're not really targeting us as, uh, you know, in, during these games. The best thing was uh, Pierre Maguire ex- explaining hand warmers at the Winter Classic. <laughs> it's just like, yeah, the yeah, team. Yeah, that was... Uh, <laughs> yeah, I was I was at that. I was at the. Uh, did you have hand warmers on? There. Yeah, did you? Did you? I, have well, I was I was in the press box oh, and okay. they had the, the, the sound <laughs> on. And when we heard that, everyone heard Pierre talking about the hand warmers. Everyone started laughing. Like it's just, just so ridiculous. You really <laughs> explain hand warmers to people? I mean, come on. Uh, you could work at Dick's Sporting Goods if uh, the NBC doesn't retain the rights. <laughs> Just yeah, so, if, 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 the, if the NBC job doesn't work out, and yeah, the centers don't hire him to be their GM. He yeah. always uh, starts selling uh, hand. Yeah. All right, Sean Leahy, thank you very much. First time on the Sportscasters, we had a lot of fun talking pucks with you. Hopefully, we can do it again sometime. Absolutely. Thanks a lot, guys. All right, thanks. Thank you. And you're listening to my boyfriend Steve on the Sportscasters. And, oh yeah, Don's on it too. Alright, we're back with one last segment of pretty crowded Sportscasters this week. We had a lot of fun talking to Sean Leahy there and also John Wertheim earlier in the show. I don't know how I feel about that new bumper. <laughs> <laughs> I thought it was kind of fun. I guess the gauntlet is set out. Yeah, that's so, it. Michelle make one. Yeah, the challenge is out there, but... uh we're going to do a little pick four here and end things like we normally do. And uh, let's look back to next week or last week. We were pretty mediocre, Don. Yeah, wasn't great. Yeah, we both went two and two. Uh, we both won the Kansas uh, over Oklahoma game, 82 to 70. And we both won the Buffalo over Atlanta game, four to one. We both lost the game of the week. Uh, we went against Jimmer, which was silly of us. I, thought he, was, I thought he was hurt. And San Diego <laughs> State got pounded 80 to 67. 
You lost your Tim Connolly prediction. He's still a Sabre. And I just missed my bold prediction Yep. as the Sabres went 2-0-0-1. They're what, 50 seconds or so? Yeah, 50 seconds away from, uh, from landing that. But my overall record is 18-11. and 11, and Your overall record is 17-12. and 12. The oh. game of the week this week is number one Duke, depending on what poll you're looking at, at number 19 North Carolina, Saturday, 8 o'clock on CBS. Donnie? I am going to go with, uh, I guess, what you would be, say the underdog, at least in terms of standings. I will take North Carolina at home to stay undefeated at home. It's a big game for, for a number of reasons. If, if both teams get past their last game, I think one of them plays Florida State, maybe the other Clemson. Uh, this game will be for the number one seed in the ACC tournament, uh, the regular season championship. I'm gonna actually going to go with Duke. Uh, I like the way they've played since their loss to St. John's earlier in the year and their conference loss. I'm just going to go with the champs and say that they're going to win in North Carolina this week. My host choice. This is typically where I try to uh, take one of the guests' alma maters and bet for them or against them like I had to last week with Oklahoma. Yale is off for the week for hockey before they start the playoffs yep. next week. And... Uh, you couldn't find a yeah, no, Nova <laughs> Southeastern University game? Not a big game? sports school. No. So I went with uh, an Ivy interleague battle oh. between in the, basketball, in basketball yeah. between the Pennsylvania Quakers. I'm going to take them to win on Saturday on the road over Dartmouth. Over Dartmouth. Lee Stepniak. <laughs> yep. Maybe he'll be at the game. So hopefully uh, John Wertheim, Karma, will propel with his uh, Pennsylvania Quaker connection over Dartmouth. When I was uh, looking to see what the game of the week might be, the other game that I considered was number 12 Wisconsin at number 2 Ohio State Sunday at 4 o'clock on CBS. And uh, it's a very interesting game as uh, they get ready for the Big Ten tournament and March Madness gets started. So I'm going to go with the home team again. Uh, Number 2, or in this case, number 2 Ohio State to beat Wisconsin uh, Sunday at 4 o'clock on CBS. My worldwide leader pick to get back to hockey, which I know a little more about, uh, the NHL on NBC. Oh, I didn't write the day down. <laughs> I'm assuming it's Sunday. Uh, the Flyers are playing at the Rangers, and I'm going to take the Flyers to beat a badly banged-up Ranger team, and that's slightly a homer pick too because the Sabres are going to need every point they can get and the Rangers to lose every point they can get. All right, my worldwide leader pick. Uh, I've had some success Earlier in the year, picking some NBA basketball games on TNT. Uh, this Thursday, they're 8 o'clock. Primetime game is the Orlando Magic at the Miami Heat. And I'm going to go with the Heat on this one, just picking a home team, going with LeBron. Um, give me a reason to watch a little bit of basketball on Thursday night. So I'm going to take the Heat. My bold prediction, since uh, I failed with the Sabres last week, I'm going to kind of flip your prediction. Your prediction last week was they were going to go undefeated on their homestand. I'm not going to say they're going to go undefeated because that's four games, and that would be a little bit too bold. But I will say they will get seven of a possible eight points in their four road games. Some of them are pretty tough, too. Like They play terribly against Philly, and they play them in one of the games. So it's seven of seven, eight? Seven or more. Seven? Eight. Yeah, if they go 4-0, oh, it would be great, but... Or in the next four. Okay, my bold prediction. Hopefully this is bold enough. I kind of always looked at it as being kind of bold to predict it in a one-game situation. But uh, to go on that Orlando-Miami game, I'm going to boldly predict that LeBron is going to get a triple-double in the game. 
Okay. I, I don't know enough about basketball to know how often he does that. Like, I know if you said, like... I, I think just getting a triple-double is, is an accomplishment. So yeah. I know he doesn't average a triple-double. So right. it would be above average. Like, Blake Griffin tends to get... Didn't he have some sort of streak where he had a bunch of triple doubles? Uh, I double think it was doubles, double doubles. Double doubles, okay. Yeah, Blake is the king of the double doubles. So, gotcha. yeah, we'll see if LeBron can get a triple double for me there. So, again, it's been a great show. We want to thank uh, John Wertheim and Sean, Sean Leahy, Leahy for joining us. Uh, next week's show, uh, we will be joined for the first time, uh, two time sportscasters guest. Uh, Dave Damashek is going to be on the show next week. Can't wait. And we're also working on a couple other things. I'm not going to let up yet for that, but we should have at least two guests, Dave Damashek definitely being one of them. Um, also want to remind everyone to check out our new blogs. It's the sportscasters.blogspot.com. Also check out our website, www.sports-casters.com. You can uh, post on the message board there. And please you know, play along with the... Uh, with the uh, book club this month. Get yourself a, a Best American Sports Writers Anthology. Maybe you already have one and uh, pick out some essays to, to recommend. We're going to have just about all of the books um, that are eligible in the Sportscasters headquarters over the next <laughs> month or so to kind of swap around and, and read some different stuff. So, so definitely get involved and don't forget to check us out on Twitter. Uh, we are sports underscore casters. And why don't you give us a like on Facebook? Uh, it's facebook.com slash the sportscasters. Don, I think that's all the rambling for today, so cue the hip, and we'll see you next week.